At the end of the last episode, a few things that Hazel Findlay said really chimed with me, and they sent me down this little rabbit hole of stories, including right back to that first episode with James McAfee on Master's Wall. I think when I was younger, or certainly in my late teens, when I was doing a lot of soloing, I, I, um, I climbed better when I was scared. I think, you know, you'd see it in like that graph where they show the arousal rave and you hit a point where you kind of you perform better and then it drops off catastrophically <laughs> if you get too over-aroused uh, into anxiety. I've heard this before, but is it really true? Can fear actually focus your mind so that your performance is better? As long as you don't push it to that point of meltdown. I went to find out. You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. When Hazel talked about mental management, a lot of this was focused on performance anxiety, rather than the fear of falling or a real genuine primal fear of physical danger. Although on the magic line she rehearsed both placing the spaced small gear and taking the falls. But the bigger problem was training her concentration so that she could climb relaxed, freely but purposefully. There's also this weird social angle. As one of the best climbers in the world, Hazel is expected to do things like this. Placing the gear on lead was a big deal. Ron Kauk pre-placed it on the first ascent. We like to think of climbing as this free-spirited activity, but there are lots of community rules that we conform to, and that's what the last episode ended up being about. I talked in a lot more detail with Dr Rebecca Williams about this. You'll remember her from the last episode. She's a psychological coach for climbers and also a consultant clinical psychologist. You know, we we respond in the same way to the idea of social death, if you like, as to real death. Yeah. So that kind of social shame is just as motivating as a physical injury. You know, people do anything to avoid feeling shamed in public um, and possibly even more than they would for a physical injury. So um, so I think it, it's, it's important to be aware of how humans have evolved and we've evolved as a social animal. Um, so Paul Gilbert talks about our different emotional systems. We would have a kind of a threat detection system, a drive system, which moves us towards things kind of, um, and then we would have a kind of social system, a soothing system. Um, and that's where kind of you get things like shame being triggered if you fall out with the social group, but it's also where we can get soothed and feel connected. And working with climbers, what I'd seen usually is they've either got a very heightened threat system and a really heightened drive system, but quite an undeveloped soothing system. So that ability to settle themselves, to get connected, to feel safe and secure and to kind of lower their arousal levels is often a bit underdeveloped. So it's letting the kind of the anxiety and the, you know, the drive run rampant, as it were. (laughs) So at the end of Hazel's story, I wondered what the counterpoint was. Rebecca had brought up this idea of deep play in our conversation, but she used it to mean being able to explore unencumbered by expectation, exploring with the imagination of a child. And that rings a bell. Oh, it's just absolutely fantastic. There I am in the middle of, middle of this amazing sea cliff, effectively hanging upside down, dangling from my leg jammed in a break above the sea. I mean, you know, just awesome. Absolutely awesome. Anyway, I was enjoying that moment, really enjoying that moment in in a really playful way, you know, not dissimilar to the way that a kid might feel happy if they were being spun around, for instance, in the air by their dad. 
just saying, you know, that's the sort of experience it was for me. Dave Thomas was colliding with two worlds here. Deep play is usually used to mean something different. The philosopher Jeremy Bentham used the term in his essay, The Theory of Legislation, back in 1802. It meant a gamble where the stakes were high and the reward low. It was an irrational risk to take, and something that Bentham thought threatened the social order. But Bentham was using literal wealth as a proxy for happiness. Gaining status, acceptance or control didn't factor into his equation. Hazel was engaging mostly in the kind of deep play Rebecca talked about, releasing herself from an anxious mind where the consequences for failure were mostly imagined. So I went in search of the opposite. The irrational choice, high physical consequence. Neil Gresham is best described as an all-rounder, but there were three ascents over a ten-year period which stand out for their boldness. The Indian face in 1994... Meshuga in 1999, and Equilibrium in 2002. All routes where a fall would have serious consequences. Neil famously shook his way through the upper crux of the Indian face, death real and looming, and his belayer in tears. He fell off Meshuga and tumbled through the boulders below, sustaining a head injury that took him the best part of a year to recover from. Equilibrium was the culmination of a decade's experience on these routes. And when it was done, Neil decided he'd had enough. I wanted to know what had changed over that decade. Why did he keep getting drawn back to these roots? And what was it that kept him from falling on the Indian face all those years ago? It was really strange because at the start of my, for the first like decade of my climbing, I really, really wasn't like, I didn't have any kind of what I would call boldness. You know, I was fearful. I used to back off routes. I used to need lots of gear. And when I realized that, like, this was possibly even a, a talent, you know, something I was good at, it made me really want to test it out and, um, and see where I could go with it. But then after that, I was like, okay, right that's enough now because then you can often then the danger becomes that it's a set piece and it's something that you end up doing more just for sort of self-gratification and I felt that having done equilibrium that I'd given everything physically mentally emotionally to a root and I had nothing more to give and so I just drew a line under it after that because I just thought you know like all the time you're on an upward curve with it, you're really, really being respectful of the game and doing your preparation and you're not being complacent, you're being super humble. The worst thing could be to go past that point, maybe lose that respect a little bit, start believing in your own hype a little bit too much. There's something really, there is something really powerful, isn't there, about being able to have some kind of mastery over your fear and mastery over really quite an on-the-edge experience. Um, and that is certainly addictive. I think Tim Woodman's got some interesting research because he talks about climbers using climbing as a kind of a way of dealing with their emotions. And definitely what I see for a lot of people is they're scared and they want to overcome it. Like most Joe Public kind of, Something that scares them, they just avoid it. They just run away from it. You know? But there's something about climbers, particularly, I think, 
in terms of personality that they're drawn to it because of the mastery over over fear element and you know fear fear of being up high is quite a primitive it's in it one of our innate innate fears basically so i think there's something really powerful there and the idea of you're sort of cheating cheating that fear of of being up high just yeah having that mastery over our own emotions is is really great but the problem is when you misjudge it isn't it and actually you you bite off a bit more than you can chew and you end up having a massive panic that's really aversive then and then maybe you back down for quite a long time or some people will just be driven to keep trying to re-experience it to kind of get over it it's just such an unbelievably fascinating style of climbing it to me by far the most fascinating and and what i like most about it is it just couldn't be more out of fashion now now that it's all about the olympics it's like it almost feels like this style of climbing's been forgotten and you know the the printed journals used to really champion this style of climbing you know in the in the hard grit era and it was all everyone was talking about it and now i'm like as i say you know it's all the, the, even like culturally we've moved on from it but you become one of these kind of like classic self-taught people and it's all stored in your head the, i'm talking about the, the the mental strategies and the rituals that you deploy and a lot of it becomes ingrained in your own sort of thought patterns and you you'd struggle to actually articulate what it is that you do and if you 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 know you're putting me on the spot now and forcing my hand it's like well yeah you know i i, I would I would thought I would consciously think like this and not think like that and visualize this but not do that. Yeah, you you and each time you do a route like that, you you learn from your own feedback. The funny thing about Indian face was that you got I was totally out of flow state and I got into a right I, I became a gibbering wreck. My mind just got all like emotionally mentally I was I lost that flow state altogether. But it luckily it it's easy enough to be able to climb up it even if you're completely in the wrong mindset because it's not that physically hard but with things like equilibrium and even to an ex- and certainly things like mashuga these things on the grit they're really hard they're, they're physically pretty hard and pretty nuancey and if you do trip out of the right mindset you fall off and um you know, in a way, I've got those two routes as a really useful comparison because I actually did fall off Mashuga and I, you know, land, I had a pretty, I had the only sort of nasty injury of my climbing career, touch wood. I, you know, I fell off the Crux Dino. I wasn't wearing a helmet because we didn't back then. I wasn't using any crash pads because they weren't considered ethical back then. And I smashed my, I smashed my head up and I, I blacked out and um, I ended up suffering from like a quite a severe head injury for the best part of a year like vertigo symptoms and dizziness and so on and it was because I got to that crux dyno and it's a blind dyno for a hold around the arete that you can't see and you have to just do it really like fluidly you know like dynamically with momentum and of course I just got there and froze and I couldn't see the hold and I was like well I know where it is because I've done it on the top road I know it's there but I couldn't see it and it was like oh god I can't see it and so I had to just slap for it and I was just too static and before I knew it I was you know <laughs> rolling down through the boulders at the base of the route. I think there's quite a few paradoxes like that in climbing where we're saying one thing but actually we're doing something else. Another one really is you know this, this idea that climbing is a really free-spirited 
culture, but actually we've got loads of rules about what you can and can't do. You know, and that's a kind of hidden agenda almost. Yeah, they're quite like rigid, really. They're rigid, but they're, they're rigid but kind of irrational. Yes. They're, 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 <laughs> yes. They're, yeah, they're irrational, like social rules. Yeah. And. I found that really interesting because I, these social rules are something to be policed, mm, not yeah. refereed. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, policed and reinforced by a community. Mm. And, you know, I had a year to reflect on that and it was clear to me what had gone wrong. And the question was whether I could, you know, turn it round and, and rebuild and, and get myself physically and mentally in a state where I could go back and try the route again. Or whether that would <laughs> whether that would be a good idea. It was the kind of hardest route on grit at the time. It was unrepeated. Mashuga was a bit of an Indian face of grit. You know, it had that reputation. And first ascent was made by Seb Grieve, who was like a super crazy, like bold climber. And 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 so for me, going back and doing Mashuga was as big as pretty much as big as doing Indian face. And but when I went back on it. I just knew that when I got to that Crux Dino, the same thing would happen again if I didn't just 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 relax into it, basically. And and of course, that's the most counterintuitive thing that you can possibly do on a route like that. Every your deeply ingrained primal human nature is to cling on too hard, become too stiff, and be too static. I just had to get to that move and just you know you surrender all those protection mechanisms and just relax and 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 let go and and that was what happened and you know I, I stuck the hold and 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 finished the route and made the second descent I had a helmet <laughs> but still no crash pads because they still weren't really accepted it at that point so yeah that was really you know that was for me the real point where I learned about you know you had to be <clears throat> you had to flow and so what I learned from that, I then kind of applied to equilibrium, which was the same deal, but physically harder, you know, like font AA or like French 8B, 8B plus, if you like, but with groundfall potential from the top and with quite, again, you know, dynamic, nuancy climbing. And with equilibrium, you there is a piece of gear, but it's really low down and you get past the point. And when you go past that point, you have to not fall off. And I felt with equilibrium that mentally I just felt bulletproof. I just felt really, from what I'd learned, I just felt totally robust. And I, it was almost like when I was in the zone where I could fall, it didn't matter about flow state so much. I mean, it was handy in order to climb well, but not essential for survival. But once I did those moves that got me to the red line and I crossed the red line, it's like, right, flow or die. I know that sounds quite like a bit of an ultimatum but that's really the situation and so you do you just you just you you just go into that really deep calm that really like you just you know you're you're a million miles away mentally emotionally from where you are on a daily sort of routine basis and I think that's the that's probably the, the true draw of, of of what you get from these routes you go into a, you just go into a very, very rare place, special place, and then you come out. And when you come out again, you know, when you hit the finishing target, it hits you like a steam train because it's, it, it has a very powerful 
very powerful effect on the body and mind, you know, going into that place and coming out of it again. And, um, you know, it leaves you really like, you know, you're on the ropes after it for a while. Not sure whether it was good or bad or right or wrong or anything like that. The performance arousal curve is how we say, you know, describe it. So it's it's often described as this kind of bell curve, you know, and then that that sweet spot is where you you're, you've got enough kind of arousal in your nervous system, enough kind of oomph to pull it out of the bag in terms of performance. What I've often found though is that people tend to it doesn't doesn't kind of tail off performance doesn't tail off in this nice way it actually tends to go catastrophically wrong you know so if you miss that sweet spot you get too pressured too you know just too anxious too nervous um, then you kind of get this dramatic falling off of performance and panic attack or you know everything goes kind of wrong or people really regress in terms of their technical ability and and so on. Mashuga and Equilibrium were both routes where Neil had a choice. He didn't have to do them. He mitigated the risk in some ways, but avoided others. And he was right in the midst of rolling the dice, with irrational payoffs, but odds that he could control. Dave Thomas told me two years ago about the deliberate choices he was making. Soloring Lord of the Flies wasn't a fleeting ambition. He trained and set out with a goal that weekend. But he told me a more troubling story, about a time where he put himself in a position where he didn't have a choice. Okay, um, here's something that happened. I'd soloed a route. Um, I just ambled along the bottom of the sanctuary wall in Devon. It was a nice V-diff traverse at the right time. I wandered along to Call to Arms, which is a really steep, hard E4, pretty hard for E4, I think. And I soloed, soloed that and then reversed this HVS to Long Quarry Point, and I carried on up. There's a two-pitch E3 called Black Ice. Really beautiful outing, loved it. On my own, doing my own thing. I went back a year later, Glenn Robbins, photographer, he wanted some photos. I hadn't been climbing much, I had a chest infection, everything was a bit wet, but stupidly I said, I know Glenn, I'll solo call to arms, it'll make a great photo and it definitely would make a great photo and apparently Glenn has a great photo of it. And when I set out on call to arms, I was really giving myself a hard time, I felt really unfit, I was climbing badly and I don't know what was going on. Why had I agreed to solo this route? It was just really stupid. Anyway, I end up two-thirds of the way up the route at a point where reversing it is, is a no-no. I mean, the route was much wetter than I thought it was going to be and therefore fragile. I was, I'm, I'm guessing something, it would have been something like, you know, eight, eight nine metres from, um, from the delay. And... Um, I was I was completely freaked out actually. I I knew I, I was not in the right state of mind. I hadn't made the I hadn't made the decision to solo the route with authentic desire at all. And there's kind of a niche where I could sort of almost get slightly bridged out, bit of a bit of a bum sprag that sort of thing. But my arm was my arm was through this 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 sling on an old machine nut really really steep in that position I didn't want to wait this 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 sling at all because it would probably pop and anyway, long and the short of it is that I was getting really pumped I couldn't breathe pop properly because of this chest infection the rock was just in a terrible state I thought I had really cocked it up okay call to arms two-thirds of the way up thinking yeah I'm gonna die 
seriously, that's where that's where I was. And I was looking at routes either side. I was thinking, you know, which E6 shall I bail out onto as a, as a route off? But I was a bit too pumped for that sort of option. I knew that Glenn was running around to the top. He was going to throw a rope down. And then, of course, the rope, I think he did throw the rope down anyway. It was the, route, the route's too steep. You can't grab the rope. You know, it, I was on my own. When, when you've... <laughs> There are, there are situations where there, there are situations you find yourself in where either the decision you've made or the situation itself makes things so cut and dried that any amount of panicking and sort of scary thinking just doesn't really get a look in because you know it's not going to help. And that was one of those situations that I could be conscious of the fact that I was probably going to snuff it, you know, but... It, it sort of didn't, that idea didn't upset me too much. On that occasion, I left it until the very last moment where I knew from red pointing out, I knew exactly how much I had in the tank, how much I had left in the tank. I looked at the next bit of climbing between myself and the, the belay and I thought there's this moment I reached and I knew that at that point in time, I had to go for it. I, I reached that point where I knew exactly how much I le had left in the tank. I went for it. I just did not stop pulling. Every hold I, 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 I touched, I pulled on to reach the next hold, all the way expecting for sure one of those holds was gonna explode on me and that would have been me off. <laughs> okay, but that, that was one situation I, I don't really want to repeat, but I was, I was completely out of control there, it, you know, in terms of what I could physically do. I just wanted to mention that. It's kind of a, that was one of those situations where the, deci the decision to solo something had gone very badly wrong. You know, at that point, I guess for Dave, it's a very simple black and white choice, isn't it? Do it or don't do it. But for lots of people, there's so many outs. You know, there's so many other ways to kind of get out of that situation that there's too much choice almost. It's not a simple commitment, do it or don't do it. I think sometimes you can pull out all the stops, can't you? And um, I remember seeing some interesting studies about just physically, this is literally just physically, that we've got a kind of a safety limit, as it were. Our brain puts a safety limit on our muscle capacity. So when you can kind of do a bit of a nerve block, people can actually lift way more than you know, they, they think they can. So I think there's something about dangerous situations where we can override our normal um, safety mechanisms, as it were. Um, and, you know, you've got examples of people lifting cars off people, you know, when their child is underneath or whatever, they've managed to lift the car somehow, for example. So, you know, I think we can do extraordinary things when we're really absolutely at our limit. So you've got all that, those kind of physiological responses that are designed to pull it all out of the bag really and then you've got the kind of the brain will allow you to remove that safety valve I guess um, so that you can then access more of your physical skill or more of your technical capability and I think interior at that point of that decision making point that commitment point you don't really know how you're going to react in you and I kind of the parallel I was thinking about then is you know when there's a really serious accident for example and some people just click into sorting it out mode you know they get on with it they, they problem solve brilliantly they kind of they're able to um just make things happen and keep you know get somebody down off a crag or you know whatever it is and other people just go to pieces um and you know i think i think this, there's a sort of parallel with that isn't there really that um until you're faced with that moment you don't really know how you're going to respond there's quite a lot of 
power to find out that you respond really well. Maybe he did know he was going to respond really well. And that's kind of, that's really good for your ego, isn't it, really? You think, right, I did it. But yeah, we get so few experiences in life, I think, to be really on the line that I think if you can find one, maybe climbing sometimes is about artificially creating that to know whether you can pull it off or not. Back in 1994, stood on the footledge before the crux of the Indian face, Neil felt he was faced with the same decision that Dave had. One that was totally out of his hands, but for very different reasons. You, you can't really describe how different things were back then. It was all about folklore and history and the roots that were important were the ones that were really kind of deeply carved into your psyche through books like Extreme Rock and, and reading the, the printed journals. This was obviously all pre-internet and like the climbing heroes of that time were they were real heroes um maybe they still are now but it just doesn't feel the same somehow like I mean people like Johnny Dawes you know that route was it it's hard to, to say where the history of that route started from like Pete Crew first scratching around on the base of that slab and doing like variations and then Mick Fowler looking at the line, taking it a little bit further, and then John Redhead getting involved and getting kind of two-thirds up, controversially placing a bolt, the bolt getting chopped, Moffat coming along, climbing Master's Wall, which was nearly the line but not quite, and then the kind of rivalry and controversy that came as a result of that. And then finally Johnny Dawes coming along and, and laying it to rest. And it was, you know, that route... It made you know, the national newspapers at the time, and of course, the majority of people reading a national newspaper wouldn't know what an E9 meant. But it got this reputation in the in not just in British climbing, but global climbing as being the the most the kind of most serious single pitch trad route in the world. And it was it was I think it just there was so much hype about it. It was almost hard to to to, to work out whether it the hype was justified because something inevitably if something gets overhyped you perhaps when you when you actually go and look at it or try and climb it you're going to be pleasantly surprised but it just had a reputation as being untouchable and I only ended up on it because I went to belay Nick Dixon I was injured at the time I had an elbow injury and I bumped into Nick Dixon he was looking for a belayer I went up there with him with no intention whatsoever of trying the route because I was not remotely qualified in terms of my, my CV. I'd, I'd done trad up to sort of E5, E6, and I'd done some hardish sport routes, well, hard at the time, up to about 8B. But I'd done nothing in the upper E grades, and, and so I, I, I went there just to belay. But then ended up, like Nick, really persuasively sort of, he offered me the top rope, and I took a top rope on it, top roped it clean. And then he just turned around to me and said, right, well, you know what we say in the game, you know, if you can top rope it, you can lead it. And it was that moment was like a trigger for me. And I just suddenly became very, very, like, I just totally fixated and obsessed with, with leading the route. You know, Nick ended up doing it, like making the second ascent uh, several sort of weeks later I went up and top roped it a bunch more times and it was very much like, well, you know, I understand, of course, that Nick Dixon can do a route like this because he's got 
he's got the CV, you know, he's done a bunch of E8, E9 trad routes. I've done nothing like that. But, but you know, theoretically, if I just switch off my brain and, and climb, I, I might be all right, <laughs> which is, of course, easier said than done. And I think perhaps like, you know, blindly in one's youth, one tends to have this sort of faith in oneself and perhaps also a little bit of a disregard for one's own mortality. And then, of course, it all unraveled for me nicely during the actual ascent. <laughs> my, my misguided logic was I'd done 8B sport, so that was much harder physically than I needed to be able to climb. And I haven't really done, I hadn't done anything like it on trad, but what I was thinking about was I, I had done a bit of winter climbing back then on like on Ben Nevis, like Scottish style. And sometimes totally by accident and also foolishness, you end up, if you go on like some of these big snow ice routes on the Ben, you can be doing pitches that are run out like a rope length, like 50 metres with no gear or at least you try and put a screw in and you just push it in and then it just drops out. So it's just not even worth the quick draw that you put on it. So you can end up like running it out at full rate length, sketching it about on some sort of slabby, slushy, snowy uh, terrain and, and, you know, like one foot slip and you're going to go like 100 metres and rip your belay out and go all the way down the mountain. And, and I'd sort of done things like this and I thought, well, that's quite... That's quite bold, really. And you can, if I almost like put together the mentality that I developed doing those kind of Scottish snow ice routes and the sport climbing that I'd done, then maybe I could do Indian face. That was, that was the thought process anyway. And I suppose I was right, but it was, it was just far too close for comfort. So it's a big slab, it gets steeper as you get higher up, but only fractionally, it's still a slab, even when you do the last kind of hard bit. Um, it just lures you, it, it beckons you onward because a total beginner could start up this route. You start off on like huge flat ledges, like big holes, and then they get a bit smaller, and then they get a bit smaller. And you get a piece of gear and you're like, oh, okay, I've got a piece of gear, so I'll go on a bit. And you keep going on and they get a bit smaller and they get a bit smaller and you're like, ooh, I really want to go down now. And you get another piece of gear and that says, go on, go on, you can go on a bit further then if you want, go on. And so you go on a bit further and then the holes start getting even smaller and even smaller and then you don't get any more gear. And then you realise that you're basically really high up and you're looking at, you've got like an RP, two RPs, really small ones that will probably rip between you and the ground, and then you've got all the hard climbing to do. Now, the, the thing that's kind of, this sounds really contradictory, but the, the, the hardest thing about it is that you get a rest just before you do the crux. There's like a foothold that's about the size of the palm of your hand, and you can stand on this foothold all day. And you're about... 80, 90 feet up, so you're high, you're really exposed, you're on a big face and you can stand on this foothold and lean in and listen to your heartbeat and look around you and look down and see like 10, 15 feet below this RP that you, that's basically the only thing between you and the ground. 
and you look up and then you've got another 30 foot of really tenuous slab climbing all on side pulls and that's the snag is that there's no horizontal holds that you can hold yourself on like if your foot was to slip you can't catch yourself on a, on a crimp it's not the sort of climbing where if you feel strong you can just hang on to the crimps it's all on side pulls so if you have a foot slip or if you barn door it's going to be catastrophe So anyway, you're on this foot ledge, this little little resting foothold, and you have to just decide to leave it. And nobody, there is no countdown, there's no like traffic light where you suddenly get the signal to go. You have to decide yourself. So you just wait a little bit longer and you think, oh, I'm just gonna put it off for a bit. But then of course nothing changes and you're still there on this foothold. And then you, you can suddenly feel your psych draining away and you're looking down and, and you're looking up and you're looking around and you're like, well, I've got to just make the call and there's no obvious logical time to make the call, and, but I've got to make it. And I remember, so, so you see, I had some, like a reference point here because I remember Dawes speaking about this and he said that the way you decide is that you, you accept that you, if you quit and if you get your belayer to run round and drop you a rope so that you can bail, which is theoretically possible, even though you'd be waiting for half an hour because they'd have to scramble all the way round and abseil down. It would take them ages to rescue you, but they could theoretically. And if you did quit from that position, you don't need to be back again because you've already made that commitment to the route. You know you're going to be leading it at some point. And so what Johnny said was, you may as well just go now because at some point you're going to be going. And you kind of use that to sort of trip your switch and then you just, so what I did was, right, I stopped you kind of looking around me on the wall because that was really not a good idea. And you just start looking at the wall in front of your face and you look at the holes and you pretend you're at the climbing wall on, on a bouldering wall. And you look at the first foothold and you look at the first handhold and then you look at the hold after that and you go, okay, I can step from there to there. So you just do it and suddenly that's it. That's your one-way ticket. You're, you're committed because you know, you, you straight into a pretty hard sequence. I mean, I say hard, it's like French 7A plus B. You know, it's not hard, hard by sport climbing standards, but it's not the sort of thing you can back climb. You, you know, once you step off that rest ledge, the safest, the safest thing you can do is try and climb to the top. And what was so weird was at the time, you know, this whole the, the, the ethics hadn't properly been defined. You know, there were still people who felt like you shouldn't top rope things first this whole thing about head pointing it was all you know being kind of thrashed out it all played out over Indian face really because because after the ascent you know John Redhead popped up and was like oh you know they top roped it you know they they, they raped the route blah, 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 blah. all that kind of stuff but that was pretty much what at the time that was what happened to any route that was like above E7, they all got top row first. I mean, it's different now, of course, just you know, 25 years later and routes of like EA are getting on sighted and very occasionally E9. But back then it's like, you didn't go anywhere near a route like that without a top row first. So, so yeah, you top, I top roped it, but I was really conscious that, you know, I mean, it's, you know, just speaking to Nick, he was like, it feels so different on the lead, you know, you, the, the, the rope drag, the friction from the, you know, the friction from the rope, the fact that you're over-gripping, the fact that you're like over-tense, you know, you can't move in a relaxed way. 
your footwork's not quite as accurate because you're a little bit shaky, your skin gets thin because you pull too hard. You know, all these things, I was fully prepared for them. But yeah, I wasn't fully prepared because they nearly became the tipping point because the same set of moves just didn't feel the same. And I, I stepped off that rest ledge and I kind of lurched into that crux sequence and realised that I was starting to enter a bit of a descending kind of like downward spiralling pattern of like each move feeling slightly more tenuous than the next. And then the next move would feel even more tenuous and the next move would feel even more tenuous. And I was like, it was kind of escalating to the point where I had three moves to go and I basically nearly fell off. It just sounds like this is going to sound like a really like sort of clean, real sort of cheesy cliche, but I kind of did. I did fall off, but didn't, and found something weird that enabled me to stay on. And I've only this has only ever happened to me at one other time ever in in over thirty years of climbing, where basically you know that was it. You should have fallen off. And you dug in and found something that you've never found at any other time that enabled you to stay on. And I found it then, and I somehow managed to stay on and carry on climbing. It's just, it's a very primal self-preservation thing that I think you can potentially tap into if you're lucky. <laughs> and I definitely tapped into it then. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long time ago now, and and... I would never be able to climb routes like that now. And, I, I, you know, you look back on these things with mixed emotions, especially like as a parent, you know, how would I feel about my kids attempting a route like that? Not great. You know, really not good. There's also the, the attitude towards trad climbing has really changed. I grew up in the 80s when recklessness and risk-taking was kind of celebrated. You know, it was a celebration of human spirit, you know, being daring, being free, being adventurous, challenging the norms. That, those were the morals that I was brought up on. But now it's really different. Like trad climbing is being demonized. I, I hear people talking at climbing walls going, oh, you don't want to be doing that. You know, that's reckless. That's, that's irresponsible. There was a whole different set of circumstances that were conspiring to make me, to put me there at that point. I mean, you know, none of those, circum none of those circumstances exist anymore. It's to do with, you know, that the planets kind of need to align. And the, the, the funny thing that's really weird was that, that doing that route just changed my whole life and it changed my career as well. You know, I, I suddenly got offers of sponsorship after that, you know, quite, quite decent ones as well. Finance, you know, not just free kit, like financial. And I, I, I basically became a professional climber after doing that route. But... I'm really glad I didn't know that it was going to pan out that way because imagine if you did know that, if you thought, oh, right, well, if I go and do this like extremely dangerous thing, I might suddenly get sponsored or get money or get famous. Like that would be like a, such an awful reason to set out on a climb like that. But that was one of the spin-offs that, that happened as a result. You know, when I look back on that, I have to be really like, in order to sort of feel okay about what I did, I have to remind myself that I didn't know that was going to be the outcome. And of course, you'd be like deluding yourself you'd, to say, oh, no, no, I only did it for intrinsic reasons. I did it for myself. Like, of, of course, everyone loves a pat on the back. Of course, everyone loves to be told, oh, good effort. That's an amazing ascent. You know, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be lying if you didn't fess up to that. 
but that can't be the primary driving force, not to do a route like Indian face. You know, it's a pie chart and like two thirds of it, three quarters of it has got to come from within. It's got to come from your guts and it's got to come from that. You know, I always used to do like stepping forward onto these routes, the, the whole desert island thing. It's me and this route on a desert island. Would I still do it? If the answer is yes, I go for it. If the answer is no, it's like, well, what am I doing here? You know, the answer was never no. I, I'm wanting to climb these routes because they're amazing routes. And when you come out again, you know, when you hit the finishing target, it hits you like a steam train. Bentham's ideas about deep play were simplistic, but I think it's easy to see why. The payoff isn't always obvious or easy to articulate, even for the gambler. The anthropologist Clifford Geertz put some of Bentham's theories to the test in his field research in the 1950s. Underneath the surface-level gambling, he saw a world rife with symbolism, status and community acceptance. And the central subject for his study? Cockfighting. That's something to think on. Thanks to Neil for sharing his story. Neil offers a range of training and coaching services which you can find at neilgresham.com. Thanks also to Dr. Rebecca Williams for her contributions over the last two episodes. You can find her at smartclimbing.co.uk. You'll probably be pleased to know that Dave Thomas doesn't offer a coaching service. He is, however, something of an expert at finding valuable items in skips. He doesn't have a website yet. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening.